I'm Alexander Hefner, your host of The Open Mind on PBS, and this is a special audio podcast exclusive for The Open Mind. I'm joined today by Mark Elias. He is chair of Perkins Cole's political law group, and he is the nationally recognized authority on campaign law, finance, and is preparing this nation for the vote and franchise and to ensure that we secure access to the franchise during this pandemic. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Mark, I just want to get right down to it in the trenches. What are you doing right now to prepare in the aftermath of Wisconsin so that states that are suffering, where people are dying and there's a public health hazard, uh, don't require their citizens to uh, vote in person and put their health in danger? So um, I'm doing a few things. The first is I'm trying to educate people on the importance of making sure there is safe, available means for voting. And for many, many people in this country, that means having access to vote by mail. Um, and along with educating people of that, uh, I'm also trying to make sure that the rules that we have around vote by mail don't create a different set of disenfranchisement. You know, one of the tragedies of Wisconsin was the was the long lines we saw in people having to jeopardize their health um, to vote in person. But the other tragedy of Wisconsin were, were all of the um, thousands and thousands of individuals who were not able to vote by mail because their ballots didn't even arrive to them until after election day. So part of it is making sure people are aware of vote by mail and making sure that that's available to everybody. But the other half of it is also making sure that the states and the counties are able to make sure voters who want to vote by mail are getting their ballots um, and that those ballots can be processed and that every vote counts. So, you know, often when, when matters come to your attention, they're of a technical nature, like do we postpone this election for a week or a month? Or can we receive absentee ballots for a week after the official election day? Um, you know, if it comes down to that this November, that means it's a close election and that individual states are, you know, practicing different methods of remote balloting. And, you know, we can't really predict what the technical nature of whatever suits arise from that moment will be. So, what do you do in the interim to make sure you're prepared? So, um, you know, even before COVID, um, we were preparing um, for every eventuality. The fact is that even before COVID, let's just remember, it feels a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. We saw seven and a half hour long lines uh, in Texas during the primary. We saw long lines in California. So we know that um, there can be election administration problems with in-person and with vote by mail. So the one thing we have been doing and are, are stepping up our efforts is to look at what state laws are going to have a predictably negative impact on the franchise. So um, I'm currently litigating more than 20 lawsuits against 13 or 14 states to try to strike down laws that are barriers to voting. Um, and I would anticipate that between now and election day, you'll see additional litigation um, that is targeted at exactly the problem you're identifying is how do we make sure that we don't wind up the day after the election having to litigate um, uh, these, uh, these voter suppression laws 
but to the extent possible, can we litigate them now and so that we go into the election with everyone having an opportunity to vote? Is that work informed at all by what we anticipate to be the hot spots, what are known as battlegrounds, competitive electoral contests, and uh, states or municipalities that have had a track record of um, delivering um, indecisive uh, or in, uh, unclear returns? Absolutely. So if you look at the cases, I actually have a website, democracydocket.com, where you can go and you can see all of the cases we're litigating. And they, and they, um, they focus in states exactly as you articulate. They are states that, number one, will likely have close elections um, where every vote really does count. Um, not that it doesn't count everywhere. It does, but that where it really, really will could be outcome determinative. Uh, number two, states uh, where, that have a history of voter suppression. Uh, where they have not allowed um, full uh, access uh, to voting. And number three, um, importantly, and I think you really hit the, hit the nail on the head here, states that may not be trying to suppress the vote. You know, they may not be trying to pass bad laws, but where there's a history of election administration that yields either uncertain outcomes or disputed outcomes, both because the, the elections are close, but also just because of the machinery of election administration in those states is not necessarily up to the stress of, you know, high volume, um, either high volume uh, turnout as a, as a general rule or high turnout with vote by mail specifically. Of course, there's a long-term future here in terms of remote balloting, um, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Paul De Gregorio uh, and talk about some of the experimental remote voting solutions. Um, of course, there's the mail balloting, which has been successful in a number of states. But as you envision a more equitable and democratic voting system, um, are, are you envisioning ultimately, you know, universal mail-in um, that everybody has the option to do that, to either mail it or drop it off within a month, you know, so that you have combined both the mail and the early voting? Or do you begin to see the necessity of a more dramatic uh, digitization of our electoral landscape? That's like the great, that's like the, 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 um, the, the, you know, the great question, right? The great question is, are we iterating our current voting systems towards a fairer, more inclusive process? Or is there going to be a point at which there's a transformational system in voting that, you know, is either digi digital uh, remote voting, internet voting, you know, um, some other type of, you know, more um, uh, uh, technologically based as opposed to, you know, filling in ovals uh, on a Scantron and then either mailing them in or dropping them off or, or whatever. And that's like, that's like the great question, right? So I think for 2020, we're, we're, we're iterating, right? So for 2020, we're, we, are, we are taking the voting systems that we have and we are trying to evolve them towards um, allowing more and more um, uh, voter participation. 
Um, I don't think you're going to see, for example, internet voting um, take place in elections in 2020. Um, I don't necessarily know that you're going to even see it in 2022. I think that there will be, just as mail voting began as something that was done for people who were out of state or were infirmed, and then it expanded from excuse absentee voting to non-excuse absentee voting to then broader vote by mail, um, I suspect that what you'll see with more digital and, and transformational advances in voting, it too will start with you know, addressing unique needs of certain populations, for example, military or overseas populations or the disabled, you know, um, uh, and then you'll, you'll build on the successes of that to add additional, um, uh, additional, um, uh, additional uh, uses because those technological changes will bring along with them their own challenges and their own winners and losers. Every voting system has some winners and some losers. And the goal is to, is to minimize the people who are hurt by the system and, and maximize the number of people who are enfranchised by the system. So I think it'll move slowly, um, but I think you know, it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Notwithstanding all the progress you've made and all the preparations that were not made in the run-up to 2000 and the recall election that presumably were not made, at least not adequately, in the run-up to the 2016 contest, um, do you think it's still plausible um, that in, at the, in the final analysis you have a Supreme Court decision that could litigate the result of this election in 2016? So, I mean, it's possible. Um, I would hope, you know, that, um, that we are able to address as many legal issues before election day so that we are litigating as few legal issues after election day. Um, you know, I will say that, that um, uh, I was disappointed that the Supreme Court took the position it did in the Wisconsin litigation because um, I thought it was, I mean, first of all, I thought it was the wrong, I thought that the ultimate outcome on the merits was wrong. But, but almost even as importantly is I thought that the Supreme Court um, didn't need to wade into um, what was really a state election that really had its greatest significance for a state judicial election. You know, it was really had its greatest uh, significance. The, it had the presidential primary election between uh, Biden and Sanders, but that wasn't really what was driving the activity. What was driving the activity was predominantly a state um, Supreme Court election. And I, I thought it was a mistake for the U.S. Supreme Court um, to wade into and review not just the decision of the trial judge, um, but also the Seventh Circuit, which, by the way, is a pretty conservative circuit. Uh, and then on the eve of the election, um, take, the, take the action that it did. So it's a, it's a long answer to, I hope we can resolve as many of these cases before election day so that we don't have the Supreme Court or other courts having to handle more than necessary uh, after election day, if, if anything, after election day. Um, but I, I also think that the Supreme Court's decision to get involved in that particular case uh, probably didn't serve it well. And, you know, the, the great question of, of whether or not 
technical piece of the absentee vote and mail-in ballots uh, would forebode, you know, what what is a five-four majority anti-democratic um, sort of pro-disenfranchisement position. Uh, whether that would be the operating philosophy deciding such a decision, you know, deciding such a, uh, an opinion uh, that that it would be um, on the on the side of disenfranchisement rather than enfranchisement. And I assume for our listeners, you would urge every voter to operate from that perspective. That if the Supreme Court did get a case that in a particular state or county that could be the decisive factor that they would err on the side of disenfranchisement. Well, so I think, I think you are, you are correct that the, um, the Supreme court had basically three choices. Number one, it could have come out the way it did, which was to disenfranchise voters. The second is it could have come out the other way. It could have enfranchised voters. The third is it could have simply stayed out. It could have said, you know what? Um, we get a lot of petitions. We get a lot of requests for emergency activity. This involves a, the review of a trial court's decision made in the midst of a pandemic with evidence you know, going on on the ground, a review by the Court of Appeals in a pretty conservative judicial circuit. And so we don't need to get involved, particularly where you know, the Chief Justice has spoken many times about how the Supreme Court needs to stay out of political, you know, stay out of circumstances that will make the court look political. Well, I'm not sure how the court could look more political than in a case that literally was captioned Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee um, to side 5-4 in the way it did. So I think that that does not, that that I think was an unfortunate um, uh, choice that the that the Supreme Court made, that the majority in the Supreme Court made. And I agree with you that that does not send a particularly helpful or hopeful signal for the future. Because if, if that's going to be the case where you have, you know, not insignificant stakes, I don't want to underplay the importance to the people of, of Wisconsin about the Supreme Court justice seat, nor the fundamental right to vote. But you know, relative to what the stakes could be in November, um, it's it's un, it's it was I think an unfortunate thing that the Supreme Court stepped in here and sent that signal. Mark, will it make a difference that there has been turnover in state houses, specifically governors' mansions, in states that are important electorally, namely Michigan and Wisconsin, since 2016? Uh, to protect the integrity of the vote. Obviously, we saw Governor Evers' executive order was not respected, and uh, and you know th- there could have been extrajudicial judi- extra means to try to protect the lives of his citizens. He he issued the executive order much later than you know one might under those circumstances, um, and it wasn't the executive order that was. Deter- the constitutionality of the executive order was was determined, I suppose, by the state Supreme Court and not the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so you would have thought, and you would think, going towards 2020, that um, governors are going to do more 
um, in, in, their, in their respective states uh, to protect the vote when it comes to November 3rd. Uh, do, do you have any confidence in, in that? Look, I think it's governors. I think it's secretaries of state. I think it's um, um, attorneys general. You know, I think it's, I think it's certainly um, you, you look to um, not just governors issuing executive orders, although that's obviously with the pandemic because of the health considerations um, that gives governors a unique um, role or platform uh, upon which to act. But, you know, let's not forget the chief election officials in, in, in states, um, you know, do a lot of, of basic, you know, building and, and blocking and tackling about how the election process happens, what polls are open, when ballots go out, how they're printed, you know, uh, how they're counted, what standards are used. Like there's a, there's a, there's, there's, it's not just Democratic governors, but we should be looking to, you know, Secretary, Democratic Secretary of State, Democratic Attorney General, the Attorney Generals obviously enforce the law um, and also can in many states set policies uh, that, that uh, interpret the law. Um, so I think it's important that we, we look at the full range of elected officials um, to help protect the right to vote. Because I think, I think implicit in your question is, are we only looking to the legislatures and is that a mistake? And I think the answer is yes. Many of these Republican legislatures, they, they are gonna be unmovable. Um, and that's just, I mean, it is clear that the legislature in Wisconsin is not going to lift a finger to do anything to enfranchise voters between now and November. And so um, I think you're correct to say we need to look at a, we need to say what are the other, who are the other players in this? Um, but I don't think it's just governors. I think in the voting process, COVID is uniquely within the auspices of governors, but election administration is also done by, you know, by uh, election officials, including um, secretaries of state and county boards of election and the like. Right. Ultimately, Mark, the buck will stop with those legislatures and the governors who are the chief executives of those states. And if you see long lines in Philadelphia, whether there is a second wave of the pandemic, it's still as flow, full blown as it is today, but just increased in its, um, in its scale. Uh, so more cities are infected. I mean, if that is the case, um, you are at a major disadvantage to organize and to ultimately vote in those city spaces. So the governors, um, like the governor of Pennsylvania or the governor of, of Michigan, they, they have to be thinking about realistic public policy solutions that they can implement even without the will of the legislature and do everything that they can in their power uh, to, to ensure um, the, the, the safety and franchise of those voters. But, you know, the buck does stop if you want to believe in the power of the executive with the governor of, of Pennsylvania, with the governor of Michigan, with the governor of, of Wisconsin, right? Yeah, my only point is that, and just take, take Michigan, for, for example, you have a Democratic governor, um, you also have a Democratic attorney general and Democratic secretary of state. So my only point is not to disagree with you, but it's to say that there are a number of different actors, all of whom have a role to play in 
you know, in making sure the voting process works, for example, in Michigan, um, because it's not, it's not just the governor and the legislature. There are, in fact, other, you know, there are things that the secretary, you know, the secretary of state is the chief election official, for example, and things she, she does, decisions she makes that will have real impacts. There are things the attorney general does in terms of interpreting voting laws um, that they can do. So my only point is, is that, you know, in some states you're going to have Democratic governors, in some states you're going to have Republican governors, Democratic secretaries of state. Some places you're going to have all Democrat, like, you know, you need to, you need to be looking at who, who are the people in each state who can make it better. It doesn't mean that, that others are let off the hook. It just means that it's a multi there. We have to be, we have to be practical heading into November and find where are our allies and the allies in every state is not going to be a governor because the governor, you don't have democratic governors everywhere. No, I I understand you. And and case in point, you know, in in Ohio, it happens to be a Republican legislature, Republican governor who acknowledged the science and who seems to be indicating that mail balloting will be accessible for every citizen. So, you know, and and there, but there are cases where that's not the case. My, my point, Mark, is just as we close here that, you know, especially if you if you take that 5-4 decision at face value which you you know may not necessarily do but if you do take it at face value that that Roberts especially will view any last minute changes as you know grounds to to uh, disqualify uh, votes that it's incumbent upon governor wolf for instance with where there is a huge metropolis, much like Detroit, Philadelphia, to to take whatever measures, even if necessary, by executive order, months from from the date. Pennsylvania happens to be a state where they made progress on some uh, accessibility for the for for voting since 2016. But I'm just making the point that I and and really asking you. If, if it is something that these governors should be evaluating every day and deciding, you know, does it make sense for me to make this an initiative now um, and, and to prioritize this and to deal with whatever executive orders I may have to, even if they, they do have to get to the court? Or, or is that not the right approach? Well, no, I think it is the right approach um, in this respect. Um, we, Wisconsin... I would argue we should have had a wake up call before Wisconsin. You know, when we saw seven and a half hour long lines in Texas, that was probably enough for everyone to realize that, you know, we, we need to take action now to make sure we have access to voting in November. But certainly after Wisconsin, um, everyone needs to be looking now, governors need to be looking now at their election systems, not just for the primary, but for the general election. And how are these systems going to hold up under the stress and strain of a general election turnout and um, and all of the pressures that come with that, plus the the potential or even likelihood that there is that COVID remains um, a concern. And if we don't do those things now, and this is where I think you're exactly right, if we don't do those things now, it's not going to be easy to do that later. You know, we the the biggest question I get from people is um, the number one question I get from people is, can, is Donald Trump going to move the election or cancel the election? And I always tell folks, no, Donald Trump doesn't have the authority to move or cancel general election. 
it's set by federal law. He doesn't have any authority. And therefore, we're going to have an election um, uh, in, on November 3rd. The bad news is that that election is going to be on November 3rd, whether we start preparing for that now or we don't. And so, you know, we, we were, are not going to have the luxury to get to the last week of, of, of October or even the first week of October and say, oh, guess what? We have this election coming up and, and we're going to have problems. We have to tackle those problems now. And governors and secretaries of state and and you know everyone needs to be focused on right. that. Congress needs to appropriate money, but everyone needs to be focusing on that now. And when the CDC is saying don't go to a grocery store, right? And in major cities or frankly anywhere now, wear a mask or a bandana or some kind of protective covering over your mouth and nose. In that environment, it will be unacceptable. And Pennsylvanians should demand that from Governor Wolf and others, you know, just using that one as an example, that if Election Day comes and folks are online, even if they're six feet apart, wearing masks, that's a failure um, it, in, in the sense that we should not be endangering anybody in the ideal outcome for every one of the 50 states is that you can vote uh, remotely. Um, but if we see any lines of, of you know, great you know, volume. And, and if we don't see the social distancing, I mean, look, even if we don't experience a second or third wave of the pandemic, by not social distancing and by not standing, you know, by standing six feet, you know, or less from each other, by voting as we normally do, we're putting ourselves at risk for a second or third wave. So, I mean, I just want to establish, and, and I know you know this, but to our listeners that um, you know, every governor, the buck ought to stop with him or her in, in ensuring that we have safe access. And we don't want to see lines with people in face masks in the rain again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Look, I, I don't want, I don't want to see people in lines in face masks when the sun is shining. Yeah. And, exactly. the, and, the, and the birds are chirping. Yeah, you don't uh, want to see, you don't want to see that period. You don't want to see those lines. You don't want to see people who have to wear masks to the to to go vote. You want to be able to go home, and then mail it or walk it in or do it through a drive-through, um, hand it with a contact-free exchange. Um, so thank you, Mark, for for joining me today and for all the really good work you're doing. You know, really exceptional work to ensure ballot access this November. Thank you. Thanks.